In patients with cirrhosis and chronic liver disease, acute on chronic liver failure is emerging as a major cause of mortality. That's why an update on precipitating factors and essential management strategies is the basis of today's discussion. Welcome to GI Insights on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Peter Buck, and joining us today is Dr. Josh Mohan Bajaj, Professor of Medicine at the Richmond VA Medical Center. He's also the lead author of the article Acute on Chronic Liver Failure, Clinical Guidelines, and this was published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology in February 2022. Dr. Bajaj, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Now, Dr. Bajaj, the definition of renal dysfunction in cirrhosis has recently been redefined. What should we know about this? So the important thing to know in cirrhosis is a little bit of creatinine goes a very long way. So if you have a creatinine that goes from 0.3 milligrams per deciliter increase over 20, 48 hours, this is enough to, for it to be called AKI or acute kidney injury. And this has independently been associated with poor outcomes such as death and need for liver transplant. So it is absolutely critical that we actually pay very close watch to the patient's creatinine because these patients already have sarcopenia. They usually run low creatinine. So even the 0.3 increase may not trigger the, you know, the alarm values or the H or whatever red in your EHR might actually trigger uh, to make you aware. So you have to actually uh, ensure that you know what the patient's baseline creatinine was. And if it's more than 0.3 above that within 20, 48 hours, you have to actually treat that on an emergent basis. Otherwise, this may be a marker for infection. And uh, these things, if they're not treated, can snowball into multiple organ failures and result in acute and chronic liver failure. With that definition in mind, why do you suggest th thromboelastography instead of INR as a measure of coagulation risk? So it's be, it, it, the INR has its own value in prognostication of liver disease. It's a very good liver function test, but it's not really in the setting of cirrhosis a very good clotting test because there's so many other factors that go into it, the platelets and the actual clot strength and how quickly it dissolves because patients with cirrhosis, unfortunately, are hypo and hypercoagulable at the same time. And anything can push them into either side because they're very disbalanced. Their coagulation is very disbalanced. So the TEG is one of the best ways to actually measure the whole clot formation. And it takes, it takes into account the entire cascade of clotting rather than INR, which only takes, it, or takes care of one aspect, which may not really be associated with the bleeding risk compared to TEG. Thank you. And what should we know about drug-induced liver injury as a source of acute on chronic liver failure? While most causes of acute on chronic liver failure in the United States and Western countries are related to infection, drug-induced liver injury, viral hepatitis, uh, surgeries are also important because they're often missed and take a long time for us to uh, put together. Uh, there are many drugs that have been known to cause drug-induced liver injury, and it all depends on whether it's uh, how bad your liver disease was before the drug was prescribed and how bad your, uh, what kind of pattern of liver injury that you have. For it to actually cause jaundice and liver failure, it has to be very severe. 
And this typically happens one month after taking the offending medications. But in some cases, it can be delayed as much as three months. So it's important for people uh, taking care of ACLF patients or people with uh, cirrhosis in the hospital to have an open mind and figure out what the patient was taking, knowing that many of these medications may not really be medications at all. They may be supplements, they may be herbal things, they may be things that people take over the counter without even realizing that they are medications. So you want to make sure that at least you have an analysis of what those patients were taking, whether it was prescribed to them or not, and whether it was prescribed for a longer duration or not as well. Very important insight. I want to also share something personally that I teach physicians over here, and that is lots of patients don't consider herbs or supplements to be medications. You have to ask specifically about herbs and supplements. Could you just comment on that from your perspective? Yes, absolutely. And it's all how you ask the questions. You have to ask questions. What did you take? You don't have to say medications. You have to exactly say what you talked about. Medications, especially herbal medications, Chinese herbal medications, Ayurvedic medications, things that people think are probiotics or supplements that are over the counter, they often do not cross the Rubicon in the patient's minds that these are actually drugs. But we have to gently disabuse them of the notion because anything you put in the mouth goes through the liver and actually can, can have the potential to harm your liver if not uh, accounted for very well. Sometimes patients don't remember. So the patient's uh, companions or family members may need to be asked as well. Or sometimes patients may have developed encephalopathy, sadly. So definitely we need to talk to patients' uh, family members. For those just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Peter Buck, and I'm speaking with Dr. Josmoen Bajaj about acute on chronic liver failure. So Dr. Bajaj, if we zero in on our patients with cirrhosis, can you tell us why they have atypical symptoms of infection? Uh, patients with cirrhosis, because of their immunosuppression and multiple aspects of their immune function not working very well, will often come to you with full-fledged infection without any fever. They may have what may look like listlessness, not feeling themselves, or having confusion. That may be literally the only symptoms that may have. Now, when you draw their blood, like we talked about the creatinine, the creatinine may have gone up a smidge without alerting your system, may have gone by 0.3. Uh, the white count may have even doubled or tripled, but may not have reached the uh, high because these patients, in addition to having low creatinine at baseline, have low WBC count as well because of hyperspenism. So the WBC count may have tripled without you realizing that that's happening. So because of all these issues, it becomes harder for us to diagnose patients with infection until it is too late because these things that would alert us for infections in patients without cirrhosis are often missing. So patients who come in with acute kidney injury, even a small increase in creatinine, patients who come in with a slight increase in white count, which may be doubling of their baseline, and patients who come in with slight amount of confusion, or even though they're not, even though they're not feeling themselves, must really be worked up for infection because an untreated infection can lead to the cascade that we mentioned before as acute and chronic liver failure. Thank you. Why should we be careful about PPI use in cirrhosis? Now, PPIs have been given a bad rap. They are incredibly useful medications, but for indications and the durations that they were originally prescribed for. As you and I both know, many people who are on PPI have no idea why they're on PPI. And when they were started, in fact, the AGA just came out with a deprescribing PPI guidance, which would be useful. 
But in patients with cirrhosis, because of their impact on the oxidative burst and because of their impact on the microbiome uh, in the uh, saliva that often goes to the stool and uh, can result in infections, PPI use has been potentially associated with infections such as spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, have also been associated with hepatic encephalopathy, even after controlling for all the confounding factors. And more importantly, from a fiscal and conservative, uh, uh, conservation of resources standpoint, the patients should not be on any medications that they do not need to be on. So even if you forget all about these other associations which are important, no patient should be on a medication that they really should not be on. So now is the time to reevaluate every patient with cirrhosis that you have who is on a PPI to see why they are on PPI, how long they should be on a PPI, and if you can substitute the PPI with an H2 receptor blocker, uh, which does not have any of these infectious implications, but can work just as well for occasional heartburn uh, for these patients. Let's now move on to surgery. How do you assess surgical risk for cirrhotic patients? So in patients with cirrhosis, surgery is often a big uh, precipitant. And this is the classic precipitant for acute and chronic liver failure because it does not have any of the inflammatory uh, milieu that patients develop with infection. There are certain scores. One of them is the Mayo Clinic score and the other one is the Vocal Pen score, the uh, websites of which are listed in the actual guideline itself that are available to calculate the risk of mortality after surgery. Now, of course, the risk of mortality does not necessarily mean these patients develop acute and chronic liver failure after the surgery and before their death. But what it really tells you is a realistic counseling for the patients and for the surgeons, because often these patients come back to us as hepatologists and as GI physicians to quote unquote, clear them for surgery. So the good rule is always, unless it's a patient is emergent, if they're decompensated cirrhosis, the only surgery they really should be going for, uh, which is not urgent, is a liver transplant. We've covered a lot of ground today, but Dr. Bajaj, I want to give you an opportunity before we conclude to talk to the audience about anything else that we did not discuss. Uh, thank you so much uh, for this opportunity to, sh uh, to highlight acute on chronic liver failure. It is an emerging entity, but it has the potential to ensnare a lot of patients, and it is eminently preventable. There is also a companion to this that has just been published called Guideline to Practice, which goes through a hypothetical case where multiple opportunities have been missed from a patient with diagnosis of cirrhosis to infection to aspiration pneumonia and how this patient could have been saved. And I would urge your readers to also look at that. That's called Guideline to Practice Acute on Chronic Liver Failure. It's online already in the American Journal of Gastroenterology. But I, the other thing is this is a team sport. Uh, from the emergency room physicians to the primary care physicians to hepatologists, gastroenterologists, uh, uh, advanced practice providers, and intensive care unit, as well as uh, palliative care uh, for practitioners. This is a disease process that requires a multidisciplinary approach and more importantly, awareness. So I thank you again for shining a light on this and increasing awareness for acute and chronic liver failure. Well, that brings us to the end of today's program. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Josmohan Bajaj, for helping us better understand acute on chronic liver failure. Dr. Bajaj, it was a pleasure having you on the program today. Same here. Thank you so much. For ReachMD, I'm Dr. Peter Buck. To access this and other episodes in this series, visit reachmd.com slash GI Insights, where you can be part of the knowledge. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.